There isn't a one-size-fits-all marketing approach to selling real estate. And sure, there's best practices, but I think that you need to develop a strategy that's unique to your brand or your business and that highlights your superpower. So welcome to the Marketing Trench Podcast, a show dedicated to helping you find your superpower and exploring creative solutions to build a more visible brand that consistently delivers an exceptional customer experience. Whether you're selling real estate, loans, title, or escrow, doesn't matter. We've got you covered. Let's go. Welcome to the Marketing Trench. Today, we're going to talk about whether you act as a guide or a hurdle to your clients. And specifically, this comes up because uh, Scott took a really interesting three-day class with a bunch of people from Silicon Valley. And it was about what's called UX. That's the short short name for it. User experience is the longer name. And if you don't know anything about user experience, maybe just do a quick Google search at some point or watch some YouTube videos about it. We're going to dive into it a little bit here today. But one thing you should know about user experience is that it is something that big tech companies uh, like Facebook, Apple, Google, Twitter, Netflix, all of them, they spend a whole lot of money paying people whose only job is to think about how people are going to move through their products. And that's from the moment that they see the product somewhere out in the universe to the moment that they end up leaving the product after having gone through it and engaged in a whole bunch of stuff. When you look at a screen and things are where they are, that doesn't happen by accident. And when you click on something and the screen responds, that is by design. Right. That's kind of what we're going to be talking about here. And I think it's one of the things that's really underappreciated in our industry. Like, if I were to go look at your website, right, and I were to start asking you questions like, why do you have that there? Why is it the size that it is? I see a lot of cookie cutter. Exactly. Cookie cutters have their advantage, right? Like, ostensibly, somebody thought about this stuff ahead of time, but maybe Mm -hmm. not. Like, maybe it's just kind of there because you're like, well, people need to be able to do this. So I kind of put it there. And it's like, okay, well, why did you put your call to action maybe ahead of your value proposition, for example, right? Like, why is call me at the very top of the website? So anyway, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun stuff here. I kind of nerd out on it. Scott got to nerd out on it in great detail. In three so, days? For three days. I'm super jealous. I know that Ricardo's super jealous. That's why he's moving his mug around. Uh, <laughs> Scott, one of the questions I asked you that I would love to lead off with here is, what did this seminar unlock for you? And what do you think this knowledge would unlock for people who are doing sales and marketing real estate? Let me make a correction. It wasn't a seminar. I was actually invited to participate in a UX workshop for a vendor that we work with. It's, it's called FinLocker. It's a like kind of a financial digital wallet for people in real estate. It's a, a really, really cool tool. They had invited me to this thing and they said, listen, we're doing this user experience workshop. We'd like you to join. And let me lead off, first of all, by saying, I think I barely was able to wrap my head around some of this stuff. I'm by no means an expert. I'm not going to use the right words. And anybody that really understands UX, their hair is probably going to catch on fire as we're talking about this. But I am staying at a Holiday Inn Express right now, so I think I have the authority to be able to talk about this. You're so, feeling very educated. I'm very, very educated on this right now. So I was invited to this, and and you know they're friends of mine, and I said, yeah, that sounds like a great experience. Little did I know it was almost 16 hours over three days. It was five hours a day, five and a half hours a day. I guess we did get a break. So maybe it was only 15 hours of actual work. But the people that were on the call, 
they were 20 plus years in UX. And these are the people that understand this and know this stuff. So it was great for me because I felt like the dumbest person on the on the call for most of the time. And I was like, could you explain that again? And how do we do this? What I took away from it, first of all, a lot of people don't even take the times to build systems and processes. They kind of just, you know, running around, just doing, it's triage, right? Everything is just, oh my gosh, we got to fix this. But there are a lot of folks that have done a really good job of creating processes. They put a lot of time and energy into their their website. <laughs> Fred is the president of FinLocker. So, <laughs> so yeah, I asked a lot of questions. I don't know if I, ta- I, I have had a lot of questions. <laughs> For those of you who are listening to the podcast and not watching the video, Brian said Scott was a rock star during the workshop. You know, I don't know how much Scott paid him, but I felt like I should put the comment up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure, awesome. sure. Hey, Fred, I hope you got your, got your money's worth here. I got my money's worth. <laughs> so it, it was, man, it was a crazy experience. I did not know what I was getting into when I, when I went into it. Also, where I was going with that, we build our systems around creating the best experience for our team members, right? So what's the easiest way to get this document to this person in the process? And it's so unbelievably valuable right now. We as consumers right now, we do so much of our consuming online. And like you had mentioned earlier, companies that we interface with online spend a lot of money and a lot of time hiring psychologists and doing all of this crazy stuff to understand how the consumer is feeling and how to interact with the consumer and how they're going to react to every single step in the process. And and we got that granular to where we went so far as to creating personas. So who is this mythological customer? Because a millennial is going to have a different expectation and experience than a Gen Xer. We went so far as to setting these people up, giving them names, figuring out what their job description was, how tech savvy are they, and how would they react through this process, through every step of the process. And it was unbelievably fascinating. And a big part of it that I really liked is there was a part of this that was called an empathy map. And the empathy map part of it is kind of analyzing every single touch in the process and then trying to identify how the customer is feeling at that point. So for instance, if you called the customer and you need something from them, you're asking them for something. What is their likely emotional state when you're asking them? Well, I would argue that it's probably not happy because if you're asking for something, that means it's not done yet. Right. There, there, there's sort of an anxiety that comes with, oh my gosh. So, so what if I don't have exactly what you're looking for? Does that mean that the process stops? Does that mean I'm not going to get my home? It was that granular. Okay. Well, there's a lot. You just took us through a lot really quickly. So let's go first to the template on the client persona. Here's an example of what one of those might look like. So first of all, why bother to take the time to give the person a name, give the person an age? job, fill out their bio? Like, What is the value actually to you when you're making a decision about where to put things on a website, for example? What's the value of something like this? I had the same question, but when we went through it, 
I have to tell you, I'm pretty empathic anyhow. I'm pretty good at, at empathy and putting myself in other people's uh, shoes. But when you give them a name, when it's Sally, who is a customer support person, she's 35 years old, she has two kids and student loans, she commutes back and forth to work. You know, when you give them a life, you can live that life and you can be that person in your process. So is she a single mom? Maybe she's a single mom. Maybe she doesn't have a lot of time, but maybe she commutes back and forth to work on the train. So maybe she has time to have a conversation or upload documents while she's going back and forth from work. But when she gets home, it's really, really crazy until she gets the kids fed and they go to bed. Maybe Sally needs it to be more convenient for her to self-serve and do some of these things on her own time. So it's that type of thing. And it sounds weird. I mean, it, it, it sounds a little foo-foo sometimes, and it, but I can just tell you, if you sit down with your team, and that seems to be the most important part of all of this, is sitting down with all of your team and getting their perspective. Because one of the interesting things is on this call with, with FinLocker, they had engineers there, they had salespeople there, they had customer service people, and everybody had a different perspective mm. of what the customer's experience might be with each different aspect and each different touch point in their product. I don't think we think that way as small business owners unless we had specific schooling or were big enough and, and aware enough that we're hiring these types of people to help us with these things. There's a lot of value to doing research on this and seeing how much of it you can implement in your business. I, I think that the very act of going through this to, to any extent, even if it's just, okay, let's think of five different buyers that we have, single, married, old, young, male, female, what are their professions? And and let's let's act. Let's play. Let's let's pretend like we're this person going through the process. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? How do they communicate? What types of things are they, are they expecting? You know, a Gen Xer or older, you know, my age or older, 50s or older, are going to have a completely different relationship with technology than a 35-year-old is going to have. Not just the relationship to technology. So there are very fundamental questions. There are all sorts of layers in which this is valuable. So there are some fundamental questions that you can answer way more easily if you have something like a buyer persona established, right, Scott? Because you're talking about putting yourself uh, in the shoes of somebody who's in your website. You're looking at the website through their eyes. So let's take a look at this persona, for example. This person is more of an introvert, okay? So if your call to action is, call me, then probably an introvert is going to be less likely to make that call than somebody who's way more extroverted. Like Ricardo will pick up the phone and talk to people all the time because he's Ricardo <laughs> and he's super extroverted, right? He likes to get in front of people. But an introvert might respond much more positively to a message, a chat. Um, so is it just as easy and just as obvious that you can be contacted by chat or by message as you can with a phone number. Yeah, so that this influences your maybe your CTA. We're over here, brands and influences. Maybe three of the brands here would be something like Restoration Hardware, Pottery Barn, and BMW are three brands that influence their life. Okay, well, if that is actually your client, then your, your brand 
the, the look and feel of your website should look and feel more like restoration hardware BMW than it should feel like Walmart, right? Mm-hmm. And that's important. And when I say Walmart, you know how Walmart feels when you walk into it. And you know how restoration hardware feels when you walk into it. And when you're thinking about, say, your sales campaigns or your marketing campaigns your and how you're blast everything, people, your email blasts and everything, all of it, is it going to feel cluttered with discounts and sales and promotions? You're not going to find that at BMW or Restoration Hardware. Mm-hmm. We'll find it at Walmart, and that yep. would be attractive to a Walmart buyer, right? So those are just two examples. And Scott, I mean, like what you're talking about, just being able to kind of feel your way through uh, your own brand experience from this person's perspective on the world and how they move about the world and what they prioritize. Yeah, I mean, that, that answers a lot of really critical questions right out the gate. Yeah, Hilda had a good comment there. I don't know if you can post that. Dependent, independent, and independent models are needed in business today. Oh, interdependent, sorry. Dependent, interdependent, and independent models are needed in business today. What, Scott, what do you think that means? Let's clarify that comment for a second. I think what she's describing is sort of a demographic model of what type of person is your customer. Potentially, I, I, maybe she can maybe she can elaborate. What I think we're saying here is you're you are the experience that the customer has is one of the biggest influences on what type of clients you attract and what type of clients you may be repelling. You're guiding the people that have a good experience or are tolerant of your process, but <laughs> you're a hurdle for anybody that you haven't thought of how do I best serve this this person or this demographic. And you had a really good example there with the introvert or extrovert. Is this a tech-savvy person or is it a not super tech-savvy person? I mean, it, you know, just getting on Facebook is a little bit different from maybe somebody who's in technology or customer support person is going to be different from somebody who's a blue-collar or a construction worker or something like that. Yeah, so Hilda clarified and said, yeah, especially when it comes to using technology and communication. Maybe we're on track with the type of demographic of the, the consumer that you need to you need to be able to serve all types. And when you're not there, are, are you serving them? So the website is a big part of it. But the, the other part of it is, you know, if you're a real estate agent, how do you integrate these types of things into your your listing appointment or your buyer's orientation? You know, when you're talking to buyers and you're telling them what the process, how do you get paperwork to them or documentation? How do you request things from them? How do you expect them to get it back to you? Mm-hmm. All of these kinds of things. And that, that actually takes us to the other persona that you had mentioned. So once, once you have this person kind of mapped out on a goals, trait, frustration, bio level, then you can start answering sort of second order questions, right? Like when they come to your website, what tasks are they trying to accomplish? What else is influencing them? What are their overall goals and what are their pain points? And a big one is how are they feeling? For example, on the feelings point, you've hit this several times is, is technology intimidating to them? If your classic client is intimidated by technology, but your website is all technology-based, right? Because let's just say, for example, that everyone in your industry is going big tech and tech is sexy. And when you go to you know NAR every year, it's like, ooh, here's a new tech thing, right? We're tech forward and everyone's... Ooh, shiny. Ooh, shiny, right? And you embrace it because that's the direction everyone else is running, but you don't take into account 
this well, right well, here. Well, well, and, and here's an here's an important piece of this, and this was kind of a revelation that I had. What are their feelings that cause them to go to your website or search for your website? How are they feeling prior to that search? Were they anxious? Were they excited? Are they just interested and they're kind of neutral? You know, how do they feel during the process of looking for your website? How did they arrive? What was their mood or their anticipation when they arrived at your website and are they seeing what their expectations are? So who comes to our website and where do they come from? Are they coming from paid traffic or paid ads or are they searching organically and are they finding you? Those are going to be different demographics of people and they're going to have different attitudes when they land or they're going to have different feelings when they land on your website. So you could rabbit hole on this stuff and, and I don't think you need to do anything about all of it. I'm not I'm not saying anybody's blowing it or we're dropping the ball. I'm just saying that if you can incrementally improve your customer experience even this much more than what it is now by considering some of these things, I think you're going to create a very positive habit for the, the growth of your company if you keep these things in mind. Well, it makes your marketing more powerful. Yeah, this is a really watered down version of, of one of the exercises that we did in this process. And the top part is kind of, I guess, what you would call the customer journey. And that's really the the stages of the entire process of the sales process and what steps are involved. And And when we were doing this, it was really touches. What is the customer expected to do here? And then what might be their emotional state when they encounter that touch? How do they feel about it? And as we kind of went through that, we said, well, how do they feel? Then we went down to opportunities and we said, okay, well, where are the opportunities for us to potentially improve their emotional state on this step? And maybe it's requesting things three different times when it could have been asked for once, right? So the first time you ask, they're hopeful because things are moving forward. And even though you know you don't need it for two weeks, maybe the next time you ask them, maybe they're starting to get a little apprehensive and they're like, is there something wrong? Why are you asking for something else? Yeah. And, and then maybe the third time they're like, man, you've asked three things from me and you still still haven't given me my keys or my loan approval. And and they're now they're starting to stress out and now they're in an anxious state. So that's really, that's what that exercise was. And that, again, that was a really cool exercise. This The whole experience blew my mind. It, it, was, <laughs> it, it was a different world that I hadn't, I'd never been exposed to with that much structure. But what I did recognize is, is that I do think about a lot of these things naturally because it's kind of how I am. Again, you can search this stuff online and get more information. I want to riff on this emotional point, Scott, because it's so powerful and I love the way you've been talking about it. So there's a real world case study here, Domino's Pizza, that I want to share for a second. Domino's Pizza, as you guys might know, when you order, there's like a little pizza tracker. It tells you you know, what's going on, where your pizza is, whether they're making it, just put it in the oven, whether it came out, whether the delivery guy has it, etc. So here's an interesting thing. Domino's didn't create that simply because they had the technology, right? Domino's at that point, I think, was owned by Bain Consulting. Was that it? 
I don't, it was owned by one of the big consulting firms. I can't remember which one it was. So they had all this technology so that they could, you know, basically measure all of these data points and be able to optimize the business as consultants do. So that technology existed. But the reason they created the pizza tracker was because of their clients' emotions. What they discovered is clients go through this sort of emotional process when they order a pizza where they get all amped up like, yeah, I'm going to get a pizza and they're putting <laughs> all their toppings and, you know, they're like getting super excited, like envisioning themselves having this pizza. They click order and then they're just their, their mental and emotional state kind of crashed because now they're waiting and they don't know what's happening. It's like, so it's going to be an hour, but like, is it really going to be an hour? Can, am I going to get it sooner? And, you know, we've all done Anxiety. it. Anxiety. With ourselves. Yeah, it's kind of an anxious process, right? We're just waiting. Mom, can I go out and play? Uh, no, the <laughs> food's going to be here pretty soon. Yeah, any moment, right? Like, yeah. should I start the movie? Like, what's yeah. going on? So there was this crash in emotionality. And then it peaked again when the pizza was delivered, right? The problem they were trying to solve was that emotional crash that happens due to the uncertainty of not knowing where your pizza is or what's happening to it, right? Especially if it's taking a really long time to get there and you're beginning to think, is my pizza getting cold? Has it just been there for 30 minutes and you know no one's touching it? So that's why the pizza tracker existed. And it became hugely popular because people no longer had that emotional crash. Like they now they're checking this app, they're refreshing constantly. And of course, Domino's can see this, right? They can see that people are refreshing and they can see people are actually engaged in the in the sort of life cycle of their pizza. And it made them want to order from Domino's because they they knew they weren't going to experience the emotional anxiety that ordering from Pizza Hut at the time or Round Table or you know, Papa John's would have. There was were no unknowns in the process. And they they started making it that central to their marketing and advertising as well, didn't they? Yeah. How interesting is that? Nobody said anything. Well, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I mean, one of the companies that I love to bag on, and, and I have huge problems with a lot of things, but there's a very large mortgage company out there that has solved a lot of consumers' emotional challenges around applying for a mortgage. I think they fail miserably the second that they press the submit button and the <laughs> consumer becomes a lead in a call center. But they solved that part of the mortgage process that, quite frankly, is still broken. And it's really hard for a lot of small companies to recreate that emotional experience. The stuff is really important to pay attention to. That Domino's example was was is awesome. It's well, me, exactly what we're talking about. Let me give an example from escrow. So I'm going to bag on my industry and my company a little bit here too, <laughs> because I think let's you know let's just be real, right? One of the things about the marketing trench is that we're digging into this stuff for ourselves. One of the things during this really busy time in our industry that I have noticed is that clients who do not normally call us regularly are calling us very often. This is creating additional work for my team. And my team is kind of frustrated by this. They're like, oh, I'm dealing with, you know, 50 emails and I've got people calling on their emails and they're texting on their call on their emails. And how do I make it stop? Well, one of the reasons this is happening is because there's emotional crashes happening. People are getting nervous that their initial communications are not going through or worse, that because they haven't heard from their escrow officer in a while, something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong or something's being ignored, or something's not being taken care of. And so they're going into this sort of emotional trough. And, and as soon as they get below the sort of uh, line of what's acceptable here, that line of, of tolerance, they start making the calls. And we're hanging out here too often, probably. We're hanging out here too often. And, and one of the battles I have with my team regularly is, you need to send out 
regular updates. I don't care if the update is nothing's happened, but I'm pursuing it. That's one way you get ahead of those calls and those emails and those texts is you preempt them by making people feel confident that you're on top of it. You're aware that there's stuff happening in their file. You're aware that there are outstanding items and you're going to take care of it and they don't need to worry so that they don't need to call you and text you and whatever. And I can guarantee you it's not just Lighthouse Escrow. This is this is everyone. Everyone. Yeah. And it's, so it's us. Yeah. yeah. And if one of the things you're struggling with as you listen to this is, hey, gosh, I'm dealing with phone calls and emails and texts all day long. And I'm so busy dealing with that communication that I can't actually do processing work. If that's your struggle, then maybe what you can do is you can take a look at a map like this and figure out where are my clients probably crashing, right? Because I know a lot about them. I know what's motivating them. I know what their values are. And so where are they probably beginning to crash? How can I preempt it so that I don't get the calls, emails, texts that happen in this space here. Let me back up just a second because Ricardo and I had a conversation that I think is really, really relevant to kind of what we were talking about personas and understanding who's engaging with whatever your process was. And it was around, it was around Facebook ads. It was around Facebook marketing. And Facebook marketing works really well for real estate but mostly what it is, and it's very similar to what Zillow did and how they got started, is it's property porn, right? So it's like you're showing pictures of properties and people are like, hey, I'm interested in properties. I'm, I want to get more information on this home, right? So that's somebody raising their hands saying, I may potentially be interested in, in, in looking at a home. And so Ricardo and I were having a conversation because one of the agents had a very small budget, got a pretty respectable response, had a 20% contact rate, the response, which is really good for for first paid ads. And the agent was complaining that I left messages and they're not calling me back. (laughs) So we were sitting there talking about it. Now think about this. There's two kinds of messages. If you're completely oblivious, if all you're thinking about is, is how do I get a commission check? The message that you left was, hi, I got your information and what's the best time to go and see that house, right? I want to go and show you that house. What's, what's the quickest path to me getting paid? Okay, call me. Or was it, oh, hey, I saw you were interested in, you were maybe looking at some houses. I just want to let you know, yeah, I got a lot of experience in this area. And man, this is a really good time to buy with rates. And so anyhow, here's my information. Call me at your convenience. That is two very different messages. Yeah. Two completely different messages because you have to understand that consumer was looking at their grandkids or they were talking to their friends and some property porn popped up and they got sucked into it and they clicked the button and it sent their information and they don't want to be sold to. But if you sound nice enough and you sound like, oh, I can send you more of this, yeah. um, you know, and then you have an opportunity to build a relationship. So- Zillow Zillow published their what was it their premier agent playbook or it was something playbook like their conversion playbook and it said something to that effect the point of getting the consumer on the phone is not to close them on the phone the point is to pique their curiosity capture their interest and just have a conversation ask qualifying questions and you know follow up this this is every I mean this is the stage and steps 
notion here, right, Scott? I mean, 100%. yeah, because, you know, Zillow is that's the prospecting be, stage, yeah, right? Exactly. Generation. If you're getting a commission check is all the way over here and your, you know, your client is here with Zillow and you try and close, <laughs> them, right? It's, Matt, it's appropriate See, it's not work because so, so I think oftentimes that's a lot of the problem. We're trying to skip to the end and circumventing all of the initial. And look, here's the point: it's not going to feel good, so people now, are going to respond positively to it. What's the demographic of that traffic? You can get that information if you're running ads or if somebody's running ads for you. What's the age range? Is it is it male or female? You can get a lot of data on the back end, like super generalized. You can't get specific data about the person, but you can get general idea of what age range are these are most of the visitors in. And you can get demographics, I believe, on even people that are taking action. Yeah, see, this stuff is so intense. It's so exciting and so interesting. When you start thinking about it, it's a lot to think about. Okay, so here's a customer journey map template from, again, one of the things that Scott kind of went over. I, this was in one of the videos you sent, Scott. So did you actually okay. review this one? I skimmed through those. Both of those seem like they were high enough level. If you Google UX and you Google customer journey, you can find some really good videos of people whiteboarding and walking through how they do it. Again, a, an actual UX designer, it is an intense very intense process, but extract from that the one or two nuggets that you can easily implement. This is definitely part of the, the customer journey. Are they aware of you? How do they become aware of you? What are they doing at that time? What are they thinking? What touch points? What opportunities? I'm not sure weaknesses and opportunities, maybe weaknesses in, in, in your processes. When they're in the research stage, what are they doing? How do they choose you? How do you deliver your service? And then how do you follow up with them after your service is done? The customer journey is something that is overlaid over your services blueprint. So what are your services? And then you overlay the customer journey over that. And then what is the user's experience as they're going through the journey that you've laid out for them? And Do we, if you guys would be open to it, I can give a quick example from Lighthouse and just please. map that on. So for example, so we sell escrow services and our clients, we have two client profiles. One are real estate agents. The other are, we'll call them consumers, but that means a home buyer or home seller. Okay, so I'm going to do the home buyer or home seller persona and let's talk about the journey map for a second because it will reveal for you the problems we're trying to solve as a company and frankly, the problems our industry is trying to solve. So for example, home buyers and home sellers on the awareness front, they have no awareness about us. Like the moment that they become aware about us is probably <laughs> when they're about to open escrow and their real estate agent says something along the lines of, Hey, we're going to open escrow. And you're like, great. Yay. They're signing their, like they're signing their RPA and they're not aware at all about us and like what we do. They're just signing the RP, the residential purchase agreement, right? What are they thinking? I'm going to get a house. <laughs> what, what are their touch points during this? <laughs> they have no touch point with escrow at all. What's a weakness of that? We have no relationship with the client at all. And we're totally a dispensable cog or actually more likely a swappable cog, you know? So if 
yeah, like the client just doesn't care about us. And if, if another agent wants to fight for another escrow company, probably we'll lose the business. What opportunities are here? I mean, my God, there are a million opportunities here, right? Like we could make one opportunity. We could make the consumer care about us. And then the, that, that gives us opportunities to earn more business. You could provide the real estate agent with a comprehensive package that they can hand in their in their listing agreement that says this is the escrow company that we trust to handle your transaction in the best possible way. So yep. now you have an opportunity to empower the agent and build additional trust with the consumer so that they're already on board when you get started. So your opportunity, right? So so yep. that's all just the awareness phase. There is virtually nothing in the research phase right now. <laughs> and that's important because what that tells me is as like from a from a sort of funnel perspective, from no business, no one knows about Lighthouse to we close an escrow, there's a whole step here that's missing. And if we spend time thinking about that step, what does this mean for this step? Basically, if we can get people to the point, let me let me go high level and just say it simply. If we can get consumers to the point that they're actually researching escrow companies, then we can build our company to be easily researchable. And then that yep. gives us a leg up over every other escrow company that hasn't given any consideration to the to how they are researchable by consumers. Okay. And then the selection process, again, right now, this step doesn't exist. And these two are condensed into one because our business is coming from real estate agents. And so, you know, consumers don't really, you know, what are they doing when they select us? They're signing a document that has nothing to do with us ostensibly. <laughs> it has to do with them buying a house and they're not thinking about us at all. Like that's a precarious position to be in considering they're our client, right? Well, well and, and here's a fascinating part of this is the state of California passed a law that says that the consumer has 100% control over who they choose for their closing services. And yet no consumers know that and rarely are they ever given the opportunity to research and choose their own closing services. Yes, exactly. And look, so where escrow companies spend most of their time is on the delivery. And why do they do that? Well, it actually has to do with the other client persona, the real estate agent, because this, like, if we get this part wrong, we don't get any more business from the agents, right? But also, if we get this part wrong from the consumer perspective, we don't get any referrals or business from them when they talk to their families or friends or whatever. And again, most people don't even know about the escrow company. They know very little. And so, and then of course, follow-up doesn't exist, right? Like escrow companies don't follow up with consumers. Why would you? Well, that consumer might refi, especially in this market, right? That consumer might know somebody who's going to sell a house. Maybe they're about to sell a house. Maybe they were the buyer and they've got a house they're going to sell. Like, who knows? But thinking about the customer journey from the consumer angle, and the consumer is our client. And Scott, you rightly pointed out, not only do they have the option to per, per regulations, but also per regulations, they're technically our client. And so what that means is... I don't want to give away too much of the farm here. <laughs> what that does mean, though, is that our ability to market to them is much greater than our ability to market to real estate agents because real estate agents aren't our clients. And anytime we do marketing to them, we're always verging. We're always teetering on the kickback problem, right? Like we have regulatory disincentives to market to real estate agents, but we, ha we have regulatory incentives <clears throat> to market to 
consumers. And yet, when we think about the customer journey map, we're looking at one persona to the cost of the other. And there are so many empty boxes here that we could fill in. Like the potential here is huge. So, so what I want to what I want to point out is we didn't do any homework for this, and you were. In- inspired just by looking at this little graph to do a thought experiment and kind of walk your business through it and look at this. And I think that's the main takeaway that I want people to get from this episode is we showed you a couple of tools. We introduced you to some concepts. It's easily searchable. Take these things and sit down and actually put pen to paper, put people in a room or put people on a Zoom call and have these conversations. Everybody right now, if you're mapping 2021, you should have your entire team on a Zoom call, do some research, put those forms out there, do some role playing, create some personas, walk them through your process and get the perspective of every single employee, even if it's Mabel, the the, the janitor that comes through <laughs> once a day, get her perspective on this, get as many people's perspective as you possibly can, and especially bring in bring in some customers, bring in some of your clients, even clients that didn't have a great experience and you know they had a rough time, that's an opportunity for you to make improvements and put this stuff on paper. Fill out these charts, think about it, focus on it, and really, really look for those opportunities and be honest with yourself. I think just by going through this process, you will come up with a minimum of five to 10 ideas for creating a better customer experience that's going to create more repeat business, more referral business, and probably a longer lifetime value of that particular client because of the experience that you delivered for them. Yeah, can't say any better. And I think that's a great way to wrap it up. We are members of the Real Disrupt Podcast Collaborative Network. If you like our podcast and you're interested in listening to other podcasts from industry professionals talking about the state of the market, how to get funds, whatever whatever your situation is, we encourage you to go over to realdisrupt.com and check out one of our sister podcasts. Real Disrupt Podcast Collaborative is just... Yeah, they got some great stuff over there. Also, we are on YouTube somewhere. So you can check check our videos out if you want to come back and rewatch some of this stuff. We also are building show links and notes into that so that these screenshots we shared, you can have access to them there. And of course, like and subscribe on that channel. And wherever you listen to podcasts, we'd appreciate any reviews that you can give us. If you want to listen to previous episodes of our podcast, you can go to marketingtrench.fm where you can listen to any one of our past episodes. We talk about a lot of things, uh, including how to do some of this, how we've done this in uh, with Facebook and different ad platforms. And also, you know, on the follow-up point, for example, once you get to the, you know, once you're going through the customer journey and you're like, gosh, what do I do about follow-up? I, I you know, I'm not really <laughs> great ideas. Well, good news. We've talked about some really great follow-up tools in previous episodes yeah. that you can listen to and check out there. So that's it, guys. Really enjoyed this conversation and uh, look forward to the next one. Until Oh, and next week, by the way, just a preview of coming attractions. Uh, yes. We're going to be having the CEO of a really awesome new tool called TopHap, H-A-P, T-O-P-H-A-P. Um, it's a data visualization tool before you fall asleep, Ricardo. Uh, it, Thanks for joining, by the way, Ricardo. I just wanted to, <laughs> I just want to thank you for being here. We came across and we're really excited about because it gives you deep insight into hyper-local markets, right? Like right down to the level of like HOA divisions and neighborhoods in the state of California. It's just in California right now. It's beta. It's a brand new tool. But I'll tell you what, like 
you can learn all kinds of things from perceived rental values to the area, to the cost of entitlements, to what sort of hazard zones you're in, to purchase price, days on market, who's, who's held, like you can see turnover. It's one of the most beautiful tools that I've ever seen. It's the kind of thing you can like screen capture and send to your client to give them deep analysis of their home. And I actually did this with some different people who were just asking me some questions about the market. I said, hey, you know, here's what turnover in your area looks like. Here's what appreciation looks like. Here's what appreciation looks like in your subdivision, in your community. Here's That's what crazy. Like community. Here's what it looks like in your city, your county. So we're really excited to bring Anton on, who's the CEO of that really awesome brand, brand new platform that you can get ahead of. So that will be coming up next week. Tools from the Trench episodes are always a fan favorite. I see that. (laughs) Until next time, this has been the Marketing Trench. Yeah.